Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Welcome back to Trial Medical Error. On today's episode, we're honored to have with us a great trial lawyer, entrepreneur, author, and marketing guru, uh, John Fisher. Uh, John is the owner and founder of the New York Injury and Malpractice Firm up in Kingston, New York. He handles catastrophic malpractice and personal injury cases across New York and across the country. John's the author of three books, including The Power of a System and The Law Firm of Your Dreams, which You'll hear later in the episode that John is happy to give uh, copies of either book uh, to anybody who reaches out to him for free. John's also the founder of the Mastermind Experience and a mastermind group. uh, If you're not familiar with, it's a group of elite lawyers who get together and basically practice that concept that uh, high tide rises all boats. So in this episode, John shares with us you know, how and why he got into this type of work, what motivates him, the best advice that he has for young people looking to develop a referral-based practice, how to go about creating and cultivating a referral network. He talks about his love of uh, medical malpractice cases, why he is so passionate about prohibiting and not ever entering into a confidentiality agreement, and a ton more. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode with John Fisher. And if you're enjoying trial and medical error overall, please, on any platform that you're uh, listening on, give us a like, uh, leave us a review. It helps us get found and and heard by other lawyers. Uh, And also check out Law Pods, who produces all of our podcasts. And without further ado, here's John Fisher. All right. So, uh, John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, I wanted to kind of start it off, you know, like I was saying a little bit ago, you have, I mean, I admire it. You have like a, a million different irons in the fire. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that you do, in addition to helping all your clients and everything, you help other attorneys so much. And uh, just before we kind of jump into it, wanted to just thank you for how much you help me. And it's like, I think you probably do this so frequently, you don't even kind of realize how much you help people. But I did one of your masterminds during the pandemic. And, you know, was a total noob to the group. And for whatever reason, you picked me to be your sort of accountability partner, which had such a massive impact on me that summer when we would do the weekly calls. And, you know, you single handedly and then getting me in touch with Michael Smith literally were the force that galvanized me to start my own firm, which I have now with my partner, Greg, that's been just going so awesome ever since. And that's awesome. I have so much thanks to give to you to that. So I'm I'm glad I could do it face to face eventually. So thanks for being here. And thanks for that. Brendan, that makes it all worthwhile to hear something like that. Because when we started the mastermind in 2015, I thought that what I would get out of it was leveraging the knowledge of other high achieving attorneys and maybe making a little bit of cash on the side. But what I realized, it really wasn't so much either one of those things. I definitely didn't make money. We lose money all the time. But what I got out of it was seeing young attorneys uh, thriving in their practice. So seeing you and your partner go off on your own, taking that big leap, that takes courage to do what you did. It's not easy. When you've got like a paycheck and you've got a wife and kids at home, 
And it's like, you know, look, I've been there too. It's scary to open your own firm. Like, what if no one wants to resolve any cases with us? You have all these doubts and you think the imposter syndrome, like this probably is not going to work out. But then you realize slowly over time and that first seven figure check comes in the mail and you're like, yep, this was worth it because you're working for yourself and your family, not someone else. And we all, just like you, I'm the beneficiary of people who have trained me, taught me, taught me amazing things. But the regret I have in my career is I didn't start my own firm 10 years earlier than I did. No doubt about it. Because I was too comfortable. And comfort is not a good thing. We need to be uncomfortable. And so I'm thrilled for you and your partner. And I've watched your success from afar. And I've seen all the amazing things, uh, verdicts, settlements that you've gotten. And it's so impressive. Well, thanks, man. I, I Honestly, it's just great to talk to you. And uh, I know, like I said, I, I don't know how you reach everybody else, but just the mastermind experience, you know, I just imagine how much of an effect you had on me and my firm and where we went, you know, and you shared your experiences and you gave me your motivation. You told me so many of those things and yeah, mistakes, regrets that you had and were so open with me and it just really just played a huge role. So again, I, I can't thank you enough for it, but you kind of talked about a little bit of your background and, you know, how you got to where you are and, and starting your firm. But I, shame on me, when we were talking all those times over the course of that summer, I never really asked you about your sort of origin story, your journey. I mean, so I know you went to Notre Dame. How did you get from where you were in college to eventually, you know, becoming, you know, successful medical malpractice attorney and this entrepreneur and now, you know, just this incredibly well-known, you know, lawyer nationally? Like, how did you, how did you get here? I mean, was it a plan all along? I don't know what it was like for you, but when I became a lawyer, I had no idea what I was going to do. I wasn't I had any clue of what personal injury law was or medical malpractice, no clue at all. And I really was not that pleased with the practice of law. I'm like, eh, you know, doing real estate law. I was like, ah, oh, this is all right, but it's not great. And I really wasn't that happy. Then one day, a 30-year-old African-American guy came into my office he had suffered a traumatic brain injury in a bus wreck. And he said, I can't find any attorney to take my case. I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll look into it. And as soon as I started to get into it, it wasn't just the legal aspects. It was the medical aspects. I am fanatical about the medicine. I think as you are too. It's sort of like, it's a whole new world to me. And I'm like, my mind was blowing. And so my wife is like, all you do is work on this guy's case. You're, you're obsessed with it. And I'm, but isn't it a beautiful thing when what you do for a living is like, you look forward to it and you love what you do and you can make a living doing it. I mean, that's a beautiful thing because 95% of society, they come to work and they just can't wait to five o'clock so they can go home. I'm like, I'm here. And I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm fired up and ready to go every day, right? So it's it's so much fun to do what we do. And you know what? Malpractice is a super hard line of work. It really is. You know that as well as anyone. But you know, you know what I think is really cool about this line of work? We do something that very few other attorneys know how to do. Like, and so what that does is it opens up a playing field of referral base that would not exist otherwise. So we've got lawyers. Our firm has 592 referring attorneys. They send us all their malpractice. Some of them are big firms, small firms. Some are gar gargantuan firms like Morgan & Morgan. 
But they send us these cases because they don't know, they either don't know how to do it, they don't want to spend the money, they don't have the expertise. And Brendan, I always tell people it takes about 10 years to become competent in medical malpractice. Every lawyer I tell that who doesn't do malpractice, they laugh at me. They said, that's not true. It would probably take a year or two. It's like, no, it's 10 years, a minimum. And, but other malpractice lawyers hear that and like, oh yeah, that, that's about right. And so this is not an easy line of work. It's really hard. But the biggest takeaway I get from what we do is that when I walk the streets of our small town where I practice, which is a gorgeous town in upstate New York, and it's, it was the first capital of New York State, and there's these stone buildings everywhere because the Dutch basically built the city of Kingston. And when I walk around and I see a woman who's paralyzed and brain damaged, and she comes up to me and gives me a great big bear hug and says, you've changed my life. That's the reason I practice right there. It's not about money. It's not about anything else. It's changing the life of a severely disabled person. So Brendan, when people come to me sometimes and they'll be like, can you help us with this case? I don't think how much money am I going to make out of it? I think it, our purpose is stopping medical injustice. Taking this case aligned with that goal, forget about the money. Because if it's aligned, then we're going to take it on. And that's how I feel about it. I'm not making financial decisions on every case. I'm saying what happened to that person was wrong and somebody should help them. And, and if we don't do it, then no one will. So that's how we get into it. And I think just like you, Brendan, because we love what we do and we're passionate about it, it's just a great way to spend a living. And I'm not one of those guys who tells young people, don't go into law, it's terrible. I'm like, this is great. I love it, man. <laughs> you should do it because it is a phenomenal way of changing the lives of severely disabled uh, people. And Brendan, when people talk about culture, it's like, what is culture? And, and they all have like these very nebulous ideas of what culture is, but ours is very concrete. And that is that if we only work with people who are passionate about the rights of the disabled, if you're not passionate about those rights, you are not a good fit for our firm, period. And it's not going to work out. But if you're passionate, meaning you cry when we lose a case, and I have people like that in our firm who will cry. They'll, they, they can't go to sleep at night because they're obsessed about the case. Those are good qualities to have. And so, Brendan, this case that just settled just 15 minutes ago, that was going to trial in Syracuse, New York. And, you know, and everyone's like, hey, doesn't it matter to you that you're not going to be with your family on Thanksgiving? Frankly, I had never even given it a thought. It wasn't even on my radar that I wasn't going to be with my family. Because when you do what we do, that that's just like part of the stock and trade, that you're not going to be with your family sometimes on Thanksgiving or holidays or, or January 1st. You're not just going to be around. And it, it's just the way it is. And people say to me, and they're very critical of this, they'll be like, you know, you have nice things, but you're not really around with your family all the time. And my response to that is, I'm doing what I love to do. And isn't that a beautiful thing? And if they say, oh, well, good for you, but who cares? I think that that's the most important thing for anyone, that you're passionate and you love what you do. Uh, and so I tell young kids every time, don't go to law school just to have a degree. Go to law school if you're passionate about some area of law and you're gung-ho. Otherwise, do something else. Um, because life is too long. I mean, it, it, it's a hard life if we don't love what we do.
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think the point, I mean, you had so many different great points I wanted to to comment on as you were, as you were making them, but that last point kind of resonated with me about, you know, you work so much and, uh, you know, you're not with your family and, and you point out, you know, but I'm doing something that I love. And I think I heard somewhere that there's a million different sort of definitions of happiness, you know, but one of them is what makes you happy is, is excitement and excitement typically is like looking forward to what the future is. And obviously you are the same way, but I find that in our practice, I'm just so excited to dig into the investigation and, you know, working up the, uh, the various cases that we're on and potentially trying the case and everything that goes along, you know, with that. And I find that, you know, when I'm excited, happy because of everything I'm doing, I mean, that just, that carries over to my family, it carries over to my boys and my wife, and my relationship, you know what I mean? So I think it's about the quality of the time, you know, not necessarily, and you're also setting a good example. You know, I mean, I know, I think your kids are, are older than mine. I've got, you know, still somewhat younger kids, but it's like, you know, that's, I think, aspirational. And my dad was a doctor, for example, and, you know, he worked a lot, but I knew, A, that you have to work hard to, you know, make a good living and support your family, but also he loved what he did. And so, right. you know, that's what you're trying to find in life, I think. And so you're in turn setting a good example. But there's, you know, something else that, you know, a lot of people, I think, um, you know, they just kind of put out, you know, canned, you know, ways they think about their practice. You know, but I know for a fact that you literally, you know, walk the walk, which is, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I and my partner and a lot of uh, friends of ours that do this kind of work in Western Pennsylvania don't do this like you. And what I'm getting at is that you have a policy that in any instance that you can, you try to make your medical malpractice settlements public rather than, you know, secretive or, or, or right. confidential, right. Right? right? And is that still something that you're generally able to, to carry out in most of your cases? A hundred percent. I've never done a confidential agreement and I never would. One of my cases, not too long ago, we were in court and on the, the first day of the trial, it settled for $4 million and I'm putting the terms of the settlement on the record. And in behind me, one of the defense attorneys sort of blurts out, judge, we're going to need to have confidentiality. And then I, I said, judge, I've never agreed to confidentiality in my career. Today will not be the first time. And the judge goes, then let's get into the courtroom. And I said, fine, let's do it. And as soon as I said that, Brendan, yeah. the defense attorney starts whispering to the claim adjuster who's sitting right next to him. He goes, judge, we don't need confidentiality. My challenge to any plaintiff's attorney is just a single time, tell the defense that you will not, you're drawing a line in the sand. You will not agree to confidentiality under any circumstances. And just trust me, see what the result is, because I guarantee you, they'll be like, okay, no, no confidentiality. They want to settle the case more than you do. So this is one of our core values is that we never agree to confidential settlements because Brendan, why is that? I mean, one of the things is we're not here simply to compensate people and put money in their pocket. We are here to improve the quality of medical care for people in the future. If we agree to confidential settlements, we're not achieving that goal because everyone's lips are sealed. Um, you ask me about any case, including the one 15 minutes ago that we just settled, I'll tell you the whole thing. I'll tell right. you about an opioid overdose of a 48-year-old mother who, who is a registered nurse who is a past substance abuser. Why can I do that? Because I didn't agree to confidentiality. And so the defense attorney tried to slip in some language when we put on the, the settlement on the record. He goes, uh, we're going to need a non-disparagement uh, agreement. I'm like, 
what the hell is a non-disparagement agreement? I'm, I'm not agreeing to it, whatever it is. And he goes, oh, okay, all right. So they, yeah. they back off of it 100% of the time. No one believes me when I say this, but I am starting to see like on a few of my cases, the insurance people are like, oh yeah, other people are starting to do the same thing as you are. I'm like, oh, that's really cool to see. Well, that's it what is, I wanted to, yeah. I mean, are you an outlier, in, you know, for the, for the years in New York with yes. respect to that? Because in Pennsylvania, it's something that I know that my partner and I are, you know, we perpetually are talking about it, have, have yet, I would guess, you know, say to have the guts or just the, you know, the getting away from that inertia of like, well, this is the way that we've always done it, you know, to start making that a policy of ours. Because, you know, I think what you're touching on is by not having it confidential, then things do not get swept under the rug. There's no secrets. I mean, it's, it, you're able to publicize problematic, whether it's, you know, system failure type cases and, you know, it can get out there. So it's not hidden. So it doesn't seem like, you know, there's hardly any malpractice that's actually occurring and hurting people. Right. Brendan, here's the thing. I'm in Brooklyn meeting with an Orthodox Jewish woman about her husband had died of a heart attack, a big case, young guy died, uh, had seen a cardiologist with, with severe chest pain. And they just said, I don't worry about it. They sent him home. Week later, he died. His baby was just born like two days before his death. It was really sad. And so I'm meeting with this woman in, in, in Brooklyn. And for about an hour, I'm just talking to her and I'm not connecting at all. She's just kind of looking at me like, who is this weird guy? And so finally I tell her, look, I just want you to know if your case, if we take your case and it gets settled, we're not agreeing to confidentiality under any circumstances because this is not just about you. This is about other patients. And we want to improve their care, not just your husband, you not just give you money. And she sat there and she goes, wow, I've never heard a lawyer say that before. You and I are exactly on the same page. That's a case we may not have gotten. This core value of never agreeing to confidential settlements, that has gotten us so much work over the years. And I never anticipated that. I, I never thought like it would have a marketing value, uh, but it does. And if you do this, Brendan, one time and you draw that line in the sand and you say, we're not agreeing to this. I just want you to know up front under no circumstances. And even if it means that we turn down millions of dollars, so what? You will find out every single time that the defense will back down. Yeah. That's... And I think I'm, I'm really, this is big for me. I mean, this is not a minor thing. I would rather go out of business than agree to a confidential settlement. And I believe that. I mean, you've, you've been talking about it from, for years and clearly been backing up what you're saying. And it's impressive it's, and it's inspiring. And it's like I said, it's something that my partner and I are, are striving to make part of our, our core values as well. So I want to be respectful of your time, and I, but I, there's like a gazillion different questions I want to ask you, but kind of keeping two things you talked about a little bit ago was, you know, in addition to being a fantastic medical malpractice attorney, you are really well known for running a business. I mean, I first learned of you from Power of a System. The books that you've written are incredibly helpful in working on versus working in your business and so forth. But you're also amazing at developing and talking and teaching others on how to develop a, a referral-based practice. And I guess from a sort of a rudimentary perspective, so Greg and I, we have two new superstar associates. One's been practicing for you know about five years, and she's been with us for two. One literally just passed the bar. But they're awesome because 
not only are they really so like crazy smart and sharp, motivated into this, you can just tell they have what you need to do this kind of work, but they're also motivated to get business and so forth. And so right. that was a long wind up to, if you were to sit them down and give them advice on how to develop referrals and uh, business sources, what would you tell them? Where would you start with young attorneys that are looking to develop that kind of a practice and, and source of business? What I would say to them first is that you need to have a party. And that party is you're going to invite everyone. You're going to invite your family, your friends, your people you went to law school, you're going to blow this thing up massive. You're going to have a party and all you're going to do at this party is socialize. You're not going to ask for business or anything. You're going to socialize. You're going to befriend these people. And, and the reality is when you build these relationships with people, it is invaluable. So the biggest plaintiff's firm in New York state is called Finkelstein yep. and Partners. Great law firm. They don't do medical malpractice. So that's exactly who your young associates should be striving to connect with these big, huge volume firms that don't do med mal. And there's yeah. a lot of them. Most firms do not do med mal. So what you do is you don't ask them for referrals because that's stupid. What you do is you go to them and say, I am going to put on a focus group for your, one of your firm's cases. We're going to do it before the county bar. And we're going to sort of show you the benefits of a focus group. And I did that with Finkelstein Partners. And at first they were like, well, why would we want you to show us a focus group? We know how to do this. I said, well, they, they ended up bringing like a couple of their young partners to a focus group that we put on for the county bar in our area. And they went back to the head guy at the firm is like, that was unbelievable. You cannot believe how much we learned from this event. So the head guy at this firm, which has 80 lawyers said, oh, let me meet John Fisher. We, we had lunch. And then we just kept developing that relationship. And so what you, what I would encourage a young attorney to do is give value, don't take anything. Don't ask for stuff, just give value. John Morgan used to go from one firm to the next, just introducing himself, cold calling people. You got to hustle, man. You got to be aggressive with this stuff. And what I mean by that is meet everyone you can, ingratiate yourself with the executive director of the County Bar Association. Tell them that you have a special event that you want to put on and they won't have to pay a penny for that. And then what you do is you just build relationships. You get that county bar to sponsor you and you are the, the in the spotlight at that point. And your young associates, get a list, everyone you know, and then you reach out to them. And then what you're going to do, best advice Craig Goldenfarb ever gave me was have a weekly lunch date with a prospective referral partner. Every week, I've got an assistant, Bev, in Iowa, who scheduled lunch dates with me with, with not just random people, the highest people at the biggest law firms and I'll say, let's have lunch. And if they say no, then fine, no big deal. But 90% of the time they'll say yes, I'll treat them to lunch. And all of a sudden at the end of the lunch, they'll be like, hey, by the way, I've got like five malpractice cases. Would you be interested in any of them? It's like, yeah, sure, why not? And that just builds the relationship because just like you, Brendan, our firm does a phenomenal job with case management. We do a phenomenal job with intake. None of that stuff matters if we don't have the relationships with prospective referral partners. So you've got to have those relationships. You got to have your foot in the door so you can show them the quality of work that you can do. And so your young attorneys are going to have to become uncomfortable and do things that they don't want to do. 
because that's just the way that you do this. Our firm has 592 referring attorneys. We have a gong in the room next door here that's currently being destroyed. And that gong, we strike it whenever we get a new referring attorney because the epiphany that I had as an attorney is that our clients are not consumers, they're attorneys who can send us case after case. And Brendan, whenever I speak at a marketing conference, I'll say, what is the source of your best cases? And about 90% of the room will say referrals, 10% will say internet. And of the 90%, I'll say, okay, great. Where are you getting your referrals from? And, and about half of them will say former clients. The other half will say attorneys. So roughly 45% say their best cases come from lawyer referrals. And then I'll say, do you have a documented system for nurturing and acquiring lawyer referrals? Not a single hand will go up in the room. Why is that? The, the, the lifeblood of your firm and you don't have actually a marketing plan to develop and nurture these relationships, that's crazy. So we do, our firm does. I mean, we've had it for years now because everything that I do, everything that our firm does, it's not dedicated to marketing to consumers. We market to lawyers. And that was the epiphany that I had. And to me, that's the biggest mistake other lawyers make is they're not focused on lawyer referrals. They're focused on like the shiny object. Oh, let's have our picture on a billboard or something like this. Nothing wrong with any of that. But the reality, are you going to get your best cases from a billboard? I don't think so. Uh, you're going to get a lot of volume calls, but for the most part, they're not going to be quality. And you find the better quality typically comes from other lawyers. They vet it. They have a better sense 100%. and so forth. And you're going to, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to go with you because it's a recommendation from someone they know, like, and trust, uh, you know, that, that it came from. Right. Can you uh, selfishly, I mean, I always trying, because to the point you said, I mean, you could be the greatest trial lawyer, greatest lawyer in the world. If you have no cases, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So you got to you have to get the right. cases. So, you know, you're talking about Craig Goldenfarb said, you know, once a week at least try to set up one of these lunches with a potential, you know, referral source. So let's say a lot of these situations, you don't know these people ahead of time, right? Well, now I do, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I'll reach out to people I don't know. Uh, the best uh, trial attorney in the country is a guy I don't know, but he reached out to me once. I said, let's yeah. have lunch. And when we had lunch, he said to me, I thought it was about time that we met. Like, I didn't even know this guy knew yeah, who I was. Uh, and, and that's kind of cool. And the one thing I've learned is lawyers love talking about themselves. So if you just ask them, like, tell me, what is it that really made you successful? And Brendan, when I was the first case I ever handled, because I've been doing malpractice work my whole career. The first case I handled, I'm yeah. like in my, I don't know, mid to late 20s. And the senior partner of my firm, wonderful guy, he says, we've got a brain damaged baby case coming up for trial. He goes, why don't you uh, just, I'll handle it, but you just be there just in case. So I go to court, right? This attorney never showed up. And there's like four attorneys on the other side wearing expensive oh, suits. No. They're all like 20 or 30 years older than I am. And I'm like, what the hell do I do now? I tried the case for a week and a half. It settled for more than the insurance coverage, which is the only time in my career that's ever happened. And afterwards, I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. So what I did, uh, Brendan, is I got all these transcripts of the best trial attorney in the country is a guy in New York City named Tom Moore. And Tom Moore has these transcripts. And, and it turns out he tries every case exactly the same. Like all the questions are the same, the whole thing. Yeah. And the judge at the end of that trial, he goes, oh, it was brilliant what you were doing up there. And I'm like, I was just reading from a script the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I know very much who I'm, I'm sort of a trial nerd and I very much know who Tom Moore is. I bought his medical malpractice books that he, he put out many years ago. I just was uh, at a conference where I listened to his oh, nice. wife, uh, Judith Livingston, uh, speak, and, and she was awesome. Yeah. But I, I'm literally such a, a, a fanboy and shameless that I just cold emailed Tom Moore, this was several years ago, and said something to the effect of like, you know, you know I know you're one of the, the best medical malpractice lawyers that's ever lived. And, you know, I would just kill it if I could just talk with you every so often about cases. <laughs> Unfortunately, oh, I never okay. heard back from him. <laughs> Well, he's from Ireland, and his, his wife is a fantastic trial attorney, too. And and Jerry Oginski is with their firm in New York City, and I know Jerry pretty well. So, yeah, I mean— Wait, Jerry Oginski did uh, the videos? Yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, interesting. I had no idea about that. that that's amazing. Yeah, Jerry's a good uh, guy. Wait, so was it Tom Moore that reached out to you, and, uh, and then you guys had lunch and so forth? Well, it was like a handwritten note, like, uh, saw your Power of a System book. And by the way, Brendan, any one of your audience who asks, my, my, my newest book is called The Law Firm of Your Dreams. I'm happy to send them a Which is great as well. signed copy, The Law Firm of Your Dreams. Just send a request to jfisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, lawyer, at gmail.com and we will send you whatever books you sign books you want. Uh, so please reach out, let me know what we can do to help. What motivated you to write those books? Cause they were great. I mean, that's how you got on my radar in the first place. It was, I was literally like, how do we run a better firm? And then I stumbled across uh, power of a system and I was like, Oh man, this is, this is exactly what I was looking for. And I mean, what, like what prompted that? Well, I'm, I'm in a meeting with the, the partners of my, well, I'm a junior partner, a non-equity partner, but I did well. I mean, they, they paid me good money. And so I'm in a partner's meeting and I tell the partners, look, I'm going to write this book about law firm marketing and management. And they all started laughing hysterically. And they said, that is the dumbest idea that I've ever heard. Why would you share everything that we know with others and just give it away? And my response was, I didn't say anything at the time, but my response in my head was, because no one else is doing that. When you market your firm, you have to be completely unique and different from everyone else in the marketplace. And I wrote The Power of a System in 2013 because I wanted to give it all away. And our, the publisher was like, hey, you've got enough for three books here. I'm like, I don't care. Put it all in one book. It's management, the technical aspects of, I, actually, I just used it, Brendan. We just settled the case and I'm reading the book and like, okay, settlements, terms of the settlement, terms of non-confidentiality. And I just, it makes my job so much easier because I don't yeah. have to rethink this every time. It's just right here in the book. And so I'm just reading from this. And I've been in court conferences where the, the book, The Power of a System is on the judge's bookshelf. And I mean, how intimidating is that for the defense to see my Amazing. book? You know, in the, my wife is a judge and she had a trial once where the defense attorney after like a two week trial says, oh, everyone in my firm knows your husband. And she goes, and they were from like four hours from where I, I practice it. Yeah. And she goes, how, wait, how do you know him? She goes, well, we don't really know him. We, we've never met or spoken with him, but his book, The Power of a System is required reading. And we get his monthly print newsletter, which is called Lawyer Alert every single month. It's required reading in our firm. And here's the thing. This guy doesn't know me from anyone, but he feels like he's got a relationship with me because he reads our newsletters, our books. So that's part of our marketing to lawyers. Get the books into every lawyer's hands that we can. Now, Brendan, like your firm, what would you say you could write a book about? 
you know malpractice work better than anyone. You write a definitive book about medical malpractice in Pennsylvania. And what's going to happen is all these lawyers will get in like, we don't need their help. And then they'll be like reading it like, "Uh, maybe we do need their help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you become authoritative, literally. No, uh, you become more authoritative. But lawyers don't realize how complicated malpractice work is. They think they can do it. And then they get into it and they're like, oh, no, this was a mistake. We shouldn't have done this. And, and they, they'll come to me like the Friday before a trial and say, hey, can you come try this case for And I say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it for you. I'm not inheriting your, the, the mess that you created. And, and so I'm not that blunt with them. But the reality is I don't like to fix people's messes. Uh, but that was the idea is to be completely different from everyone else in the marketplace by nurturing and really reaching out to lawyers who can send us a steady pipeline of cases. And I have to tell you, that's great because Finkelstein and, and partners in New York State, they've got about, I don't know, at least a dozen offices. They probably have a multi-zillion dollar marketing budget. They're everywhere. They're on newspapers, they're on TV, they're on billboards. I don't spend a penny of their marketing budget, yet they refer malpractice cases to us and generally high quality stuff. They don't send junk. Uh, so that relationship has really worked because we are a small firm here. We, we have five in the intake department. We have a case manager. And this is, Brendan, one thing I learned from the pandemic was the value of using remote workers. Our, our chief litigation paralegal is in Knoxville, Tennessee. She is phenomenal. I could never work with her if she had to be in our office. She wasn't going to move to New York. but her And she works nonstop. And she always says to me, Brendan, Oh, um, this weekend, do you mind if I work overtime? I'm like, no, I don't mind. Go ahead, do it. And she'll cut, she'll write like 22 hours. I'm like, what, what were you doing working the whole weekend? But it's when you've got people passionate about your line of work, I mean, you become an unstoppable force of nature at that point. And, and that's the key is with, with the team that we have, I feel like we've got that. And what we do, Brendan, is we don't do the stuff that we hate doing. Like, I don't do lean resolution. We've got a company in Buffalo, New York. They're phenomenal. I don't do medical records. We outsource that. And we don't do probate work because I suck at it. So why do the work that you, and what, what is the work that really that you love and fires you up? Well, that's what you should be doing. So I would not be a good Craig Golden Farb because if I'm looking at charts all day long and graphs, I'd be like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. But if you tell me, hey, you're going to be meeting with clients, you're going to be doing trials. I love strategically planning through trials and I get fired up about it. I enjoy it. And I see other lawyers and I'm like, man, they're just going through the motions of life. This is something that I really enjoy. So, and my wife, I'm very fortunate because my wife understands this. And if I have to be away for two or three weeks or a month, she's okay with it because I do know, and I get a lot of pushback for this. I don't believe real money comes from insurance companies. I think it comes from juries. And that's just the way I look at it. In every single case that we have, we're pushing it to trial. And I'm actually hoping at a settlement conference that it doesn't work out because I know pushing it to that trial is where the money will come. No, I'm, I think we've both seen that over and over again. You got to yeah. prepare your cases though they're going to trial, right? Because you know, that old saying. But let me ask you this, because I I know this has you had to have, you know, hit this uh, crossroads maybe numerous times in your in the course of your practice. So. What was your thinking or what has been your thinking over the years of whether to, you know, grow bigger, more attorneys, you know, more 
partners or stay smaller size firm, lean and mean. I mean, you you had to have had you know to confront that at times. You know, yeah. do, what what do you want your firm to be, and what's your plan? I mean, what what has been your thinking behind that? The plan is, and it it really has been this for quite a long time is to basically to offshoot, delegate everything that I don't love, love doing and, and just finding the stuff that I love to do. And so Brendan, like for me, would bringing in an attorney would be like an, a young associate attorney, would that be a good move? I'm not sure what they could do to help us. I mean, that's the truth. Like, what would they do? I mean, the first five or six years would just be a training ground for that lawyer. And, you know, if I send them into a deposition or into a trial, they, they would get destroyed. That would not be a good experience for them. And so there's certain nuances that they, they just would not grasp. The thing is, but I do know the power of paralegals. I don't want to do any paperwork. I don't do paperwork, period. I don't want to do anything related to motion. So we do have an attorney who does all of our emotions and does a phenomenal job. It's not that I can't do it. I just don't want to do it. So if right. there's a motion in limine, anything like that, or opposition papers, it goes to the attorney and she's in Syracuse. So she's quite a ways from our office. She does all of that. We have one litigation paralegal just does case management. She does a phenomenal job. Incredible. Like the paperwork, I don't even need to revise. It may be a, a word or two, but other than that, uh, nothing. And we've got five people on our intake team. They're incredible. They are amazing. And you know what? It, it's just being around people that you love to be around with is so important. And and not being around people who are like, oh, you know, I just, this sucks. I can't wait to get out of here. Well, you know, I just don't like people who are negative view life because all of us could be pissed at something. We have to be happy and grateful for what we've got in our lives. And, and I think looking at it, the best lesson I ever got from strategic coach was measure backwards. Look back at the last six months. And if you did this, Brendan, write all the things you've accomplished in the last six months and you'd be like, spend five minutes doing that. You'd be like, holy cow, this is unbelievable how far we've come in only six months. But you don't think that way, right? You think of like, what is the stuff that I don't have? But there's yeah. always going to be stuff that we don't have. But what are the things that we've accomplished when we measure backwards? I mean, it's like the world has changed. And so I think that it, when that forces us to be grateful for the things that we have rather than the things that we don't have. And that's so important. And what do we have? You and I, we're doing what we love. This is a dream come true to be doing and to be working with people that we truly respect and enjoy working with. That's priceless. I wouldn't have that working at a firm. You know, they would be, I'd have to ask for permission whether I'm going on vacation. It's like, I don't want to do that anymore, you know? <laughs> but I mean, you could, you could easily have, and I think that Greg and I, we have you know, come to, in fact, we, we worked with Michael Smith's group trying to mm -hmm. help us understand, you know, what do we want to be? What do we want out of the, the work-life balance? Right. You know, all, all of that, you know, because there's those thoughts of, well, there's these, you know, other phenomenal uh, attorneys around and we could, you know, partner with them and, and create this super firm, you know, but then as we start to dig into it, it's like, yeah, but we really love the way things are set up now. And if you can have something that works really well, I mean, in the one hand, it's like, you know, well, shouldn't you be evolving? And, you know, I've heard people say, you know, uh, grow or die or this kind of stuff. And I think that kind of gets taken out of context, mm -hmm. you know, but I think that we've found that, no, what we want to be doing is working on a small number of re really meaningful cases that we can really pour 
all yes. of our, our time and effort into, you know, while maintaining some degree of, of work-life balance. And I think that's kind of what we've, we've stumbled on is like, that's what the right fit is for us. Well, Brendan, I mean, the reality is, and I hate this when, when I see this at marketing conferences, they're like, get huge, go big, all this other stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's right. not necessarily right for everyone. Not everyone wants to be the CEO. Some of us want to be in the courtroom. Some of us want to be meeting with clients and doing depositions because that's what we love doing. And so the, this whole concept that you have to grow this huge mega firm, I, I just think that that's completely misguided because it's not right for everyone. And that's what I really like about Craig Goldenfarb. He says, what I do might not be right for you. You have to follow your passion. And Brennan, in your case, do you want to be this mega firm? Because I can tell you, there's lots of headaches that come with being a mega firm. And that may, John Morgan, Morgan and Morgan, his overhead on a monthly basis is 50 to $60 million. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I, I couldn't go to sleep if I had <laughs> like, exactly. this. I can uh, barely sleep now. Yeah, you know, right. And so- it's, it's something like that I, I just don't want to do. So what we try to do is, is we try to hire extraordinary people. We try to find the best. We demand excellence. We don't accept anything less. And if somebody's not a right fit for our firm, we try to gently guide them out the firm with compassion. We don't try to be a jerk because I wouldn't want to be treated. I've been fired. It's not nice yeah. when you get fired. It sucks. And when I got fired in 2000 and uh, December 2000, June of 2010, man, I walked out that door. I'm like, I got a wife and three little kids at home. What the hell am I going to do? Um, it's hard to get fired. So what I, the, the takeaway from there is to be compassionate and kind to people and offer to help them find something else because not everyone's right for the line of work that we do, because I'll tell people right up front, this is a really hard line of work. There's going to be days here that you're going to be like, oh, this is just horrible. But the reality, when you change the lives of severely disabled people, it's the greatest thing in the world. Agreed. Yeah. Have you, you know, in order to do that, I mean, because obviously, you know, you exude that that's what you love to do. You love the aspect of being a trial lawyer, the legal strategizing and so forth. And yet you have all these clear other interests in how to run a firm, how to, you know, systematize your firm and so forth. I mean, have you gotten to a point where, I mean, have you ever considered trying to get like a CEO of your firm so you could do all the law type stuff? Because at least you seem to me like you wear both hats for the most yeah. part. Yeah, no, I, I wear all the, you know, I do wear the hat. So <laughs> yeah. The CEO, um, one of my closest friends was a high school principal for about 17 years and he just left that position and I, I took him into my office and I said, why don't, why don't you work here and you'd be our second in command you basically run everything because we are expanding. We're expanding into the Bronx. Uh, we're expanding okay. our, our business, uh, but we're not expanding the volume of cases. We're expanding the quality of the cases. And the Bronx just happens to be a really good venue to be. So that's what we're doing. I said to my friend, why don't you come in here and work? And he was making about 200000 a year with the high school. And and he's a wonderful guy. I love him. Yeah. But, but He's like, well, I want to do better than high school. I'm like, okay, all right, how much? You know, and yeah. honestly, it was just too much. It, it just didn't right. work out. So, I mean, there's a limit to everything. And my thought process there was, I want to eliminate every administrative task that I don't enjoy doing. Exactly. Just delegate the hell out of everything. Get it off my plate. 
and whatever it is like that administrative details. I just don't like the administrative issues of running a law firm. So I do try to get that out. I'd say my next goal here, other than adding paralegals, because I'm always looking to do that, is to add a second in command to the firm where, you know, I just don't have to do the any of the managerial aspects of a firm because I don't enjoy it. That's something that we have been grappling with for some time now. We It would just sort of... Uh, a dream, you know, to imagine yeah. that somebody else could sort of run the the at least the you know the the business, the administrative side of things that you could trust. But we always just kind of wrestle with like, who would that be? What would be the right makeup of that type of person? Right. Would they, you know, do they understand contingency plaintiff type work, that sort of thing? So, you know, we kind of always get caught up and and then uh, you know just kind of keep moving forward and, and trying to improve what we're doing as our own you know business owners, but. Right. We just continue to, to wrestle with that. But let me ask you this, going forward, I mean, you've talked about Finkelstein Associates, you've talked about Morgan & Morgan. Do you have any concern in, say, the next 10 to 15 years for threats to, you know, firms of your size, my size, you know, smaller boutique type firms, predominantly medical malpractice that, you know, they could get absorbed or, you know, the market dries up for cases or anything like that? Or are you pretty uh, bullish about the future for firms like our size? Well, actually, we're trying to expand into non-medical malpractice because in New York State, the fees can be as low as 10% uh, in malpractice work. So it's very limited work. Um, uh, th that's good and bad. I mean, it's good in the sense that it eliminates all competition for our law firm. It's great to be in a field where we have no competitors. But when I hear, because I practice in Alabama and a few other states as well, when I hear other people say, oh, we make a third or 40%, I'm like, are you serious? I mean, look, <laughs> I'm not sure when I would have retired, but I mean, retirement would have happened like, you know, long time ago if, if I was making a third or 40%. That's crazy. So we on average make about 10% legal fee, not on the gross, but the net. And it essentially has eliminated all competition. And Look, I mean, in a way it's horrible, but in a way it's good because 90% of the recovery is going to the client. And so I kind of feel right. good about that. Yeah. I mean, in Alabama, they go, oh, we charge 50%. I'm like 50%. That's insane. And and I'm thinking, how could I really say to a client, you get half, I get the other half. I, I couldn't live with that. And we do birth injury cases all over the country because this is, this is really our niche is birth right. injury. And- so other attorneys will contact us in other states and say, hey, can we co-counsel with you? And and I enjoy that. It's because in Alabama, there's no one who really does birth injury. We do it, and I think we do it pretty well. So, Oh, that's great. For C, well, I guess that's just sort of more of a New York thing. So what you're saying is because of that, you have that kind of tiered fee structure yes. that you can, you know, there's there's major caps on what the attorney fee can be on MedMal cases right. in New York, correct? Yes, yes. And so because of that, it almost, between, you know, complexity of medical malpractice and the fee structure, it really knocks down your, you know, overall competition in your area. It eliminates it. It eliminates Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's like in Pennsylvania, you're, you're, you're living in a gold mine because are you a third legal fee? Most firms charge 40%, but yeah, anywhere from third to a 40%. Is, yeah, that, that blows my mind. Is. I mean, I can't even imagine that, um, what that would be like. Uh, so it's it's hard for me. I mean, it, it's actually I've toyed with the idea of going to other states. New York actually is 
probably, you know, it is the best state in the country in terms of the value of malpractice cases. Right. Uh, so it, it's the highest value. And generally, the environment here is not bad. It's, you know, it, it varies county to county, but it's great. And, you know, look, the 10% stinks, but I can, we can still make a living doing it. It's not like anyone's going out of business, but it is hard. And, and I would like to expand our firm's revenue to non-medical malpractice because my career has been spent doing other types of law as well, like train wrecks, truck wrecks. And in New York has a wonderful law called Labor Law 240 that protects construction workers who are working at elevated heights. It's an amazing law. It's incredible. And very few lawyers understand it or know it, but it's a great law. So New York does have some consume, very uh, protective laws for consumers, but not for lawyers. <laughs> yeah, right. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, sometimes I don't you know, forget how good we have it here, I guess, as, yeah. uh, as the attorneys. So we're, we're getting towards, you know, the, the hour mark here and um, we want to be respectful of your time selfishly. Okay. So your firm, I think you said you started your firm, what, 13 years ago about? Yeah. Yeah. About that. You know, my partner, Greg and I, we were partners with other uh, attorneys for a bit. We're, we're right at the two year mark. Okay. Right. So at, at the two year mark, uh, very similar type format of a firm, Mm -hmm. Although, you know, ask, you know, aspiring to be uh, as organized as, as your firm is, as you look back, you know, going what you're talking about before, looking back past six months, past, you know, year, five years, what advice or recommendations, I mean, I know it's a very broad question, would you give to a firm like ours? You know, like if you're looking back, you know, what were the biggest inflection points? You know, what were the most important you know, I mean, things you did that you think right. looking back had the biggest impact. No, no doubt. No question about it. We have a website that's called fisherpedia.com. And by the way, I'd, I'd be happy to give the login credentials to anyone on the call. We document every core process of our firm, including Brendan. Recently, a judge said to me, you know, you can't recover. An, an adult child cannot recover for loss of parental guidance in New York. And so in Fisherpedia, we had one of our legal forms was a memo of law that covered us. Judge, I'd just like to send you this memo. And she goes, oh, I guess you can recover this. <laughs> so <laughs> right when you document every core process of your firm, including onboarding. So let's say you've got a new paralegal coming to your firm, the first series. And I would do this as a series like you do human re resources, you know, what forms do you need signed out? And then you'd have a series of case management, advanced case management, and take them through a series of training modules where you'd have everything set up for them before they come to your firm so they know exactly what to expect at your firm. And I would do that for everything. These core processes, I'd build it out and I would get your team to build it out, not you. I don't want you doing any of this but your team will know it better than you. So for example, how to request records from our medical records company, or, or if somebody asked me, a judge said, we've got three other lawyers on the call, we need to do a, th a five-way phone conference. No problem, judge. I get onto Fisherpedia, I see that we've got a policy there. It shows me step-by-step -step how to do a five-way phone conference. And within seconds, we're on, even though I had never done it before. When you document the core processes, you become a McDonald's law firm, meaning every aspect of your firm is systematic. You know exactly what's going to happen. Brendan, you settle a case today, 
and you say, okay, we've got to put this on the record. Are you just going to wing it? No, you're going to have a core policy that reads, these are the terms of the settlement that we use in every case. These are the terms regarding non-confidentiality, what we can agree to, and you spell it all out. It makes it super simple. You've got a young attorney, they're in court. They're like, Brendan, I've got to put a settlement on the record. What, what do I say? Well, just go to your firm's version of Fisherpedia, put it in there. And what you're doing is you're not replicating the same things over and over again. You do it once, you put it in your version, and then it's done. You don't have to recreate anything. And you've got a package that you could share with everyone in your firm and outside your firm to show what processes and systems that you have. So in the last five to 10 years, Fisherpedia has been the best thing that we've ever done because it eliminates replicating processes that are recurring that we just do over and over again. And you mentioned a moment ago, and you have extolled that uh, to me, and, and Greg and I have, um, you know, we, we use a different platform, but mm -hmm. are attempting to do our own version of, uh, you know, Lupatin and Units and Pedia. Right. But you mentioned a moment ago, you don't do, well, not that you don't do it at all, but but more so it should be the staff or the, right. the personnel that work with you that should be forming it. How do you do that? Or, or what, how do you make that happen? Well, really what you try to do is we come up with an open door policy. If somebody's got an issue, they can come to me. I'm not in our office very often, uh, but when I am, they can come to me. We do have a daily huddle and they can bring up any issue they want, but I'm going to ask them, do we have a policy for this? So there, there's, there's a system that we have for raising questions. Number one, you have to identify what the problem or issue is. And then number two, you have to come up with three potential solutions to the problem. And then the final step is that you have to make a recommendation. So I'm not gonna simply spoon feed answers for you because that's upward delegation. If your staff is going back to you and saying, Brendan, what should we do now? That's upward delegation. You can't give them that answer because they need to be self-sufficient on their own because otherwise, what if you're not around? They won't know what to do. So you need them to work through these problems on their own and come up with their own solution and you're happy to guide them, but after they've made the recommendation first. And so that's something that I avoid 100%. If somebody comes to me, what should we do now? It's like, I want you to figure that out yourself. I'm not going to give you the answer. And that happens a lot. Uh, so we're constantly in that little uh, battle where we're trying to avoid them delegating work to me. I don't want anyone delegating work to me. That's, their, that's the reason I hired extraordinary people is to handle all these problems and if I'm gone, I want them to handle these problems on their own. Awesome. That's great. Well, we'll wrap up here, John. But, you know, you're always up to a lot of different things. But, you know, you got the mastermind and so forth. So for anybody that wants to get a hold of you, they want to get on your, you know, the mailer, they want to get the newsletter, they want to go attend a, a mastermind, where are the best places to get in uh, that sphere of your world. Well, Brendan, you had asked me, like, what should a young attorney do who's just starting out? It's like, you should go, you, you should leverage the knowledge of higher achieving attorneys. That's what you should do. You, you shouldn't just sit there in your own little community and just hope for the best. You should leverage people who are doing things much better than you are. That is the number one secret of the most successful. And when we go to the mastermind, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm like down near the bottom. And that's a good thing. And these amazing people come together. So what I would say to your, your team there, the younger attorneys, I'd say, look, 
uh, go to a mastermind. I'll pay for it. I'll go to the mastermind with you. And, and let's just see, let's bring our biggest challenge to the mastermind. So we started doing the mastermind experience in 2015. It is easily the best thing I've ever done in my career. I meet amazing people like you and, and, and the people just share everything that they know. And then you form friendships and relationships. So if anyone is interested, the next mastermind will be at Craig Goldenfarb's law office in West Palm Beach, Florida on Friday, January 26th. We, our next one after that is April 12th in Boston. The next one after that will be on June 6th in Sicily, in uh, oh, wow. Syracuse, Sicily. <laughs> so we have fun too. And John Morgan of Morgan & Morgan has been to our masterminds. He's spoken to us. We, awesome. we have incredible people like Michael Smith and his partner, Sarah Frasca, have been to our mastermind. And they just share everything they know. And all the problems that you think are unique to your law firm, they're not. Everyone else yeah. experiences the same problems. But getting around people like Seth Price and Craig Goldenfarb, who will share everything, who run amazing law firms, so what I would say is go to mastermindexperience.com, call my cell if you're interested, 518-265-9131. Let me know like if you have questions. Anyone who wants to join, we don't do this for money. We simply do this because I love to see people just like you, Brendan, who thrive in your career and do crazy stuff that you never otherwise may have done. One final quick story. The first mastermind we had in Florida there's a young attorney who's probably about 30 years old. And he says, I want to be a medical malpractice lawyer. And every lawyer in the room, and I'm saying this because they've agreed that I can share this. They all like, that's crazy. You're out of your mind. You realize how expensive that is. And he was getting beat down. And I said to him, if this is your dream and you're totally committed to it, then you have to do it. And we have resources. I've got experts. I've got everything that you could need. And I'm here to help you. So for about two years, I didn't hear a peep from him. And I, I kind of thought that maybe he had just given up on the whole thing. And then about two years after that, I see a text from him and he, go, he goes, I'm, and it reads, I'm waiting on my first verdict from a malpractice case. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. The next day I get another text from him and he goes, I got a, a verdict for the plaintiff, nine and a half million dollars. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, Amazing. That's crazy. And you know <laughs> yeah. what? And now he has a malpractice firm in both Minnesota and Oregon. And he, you know, he's doing well. I mean, look, it's a struggle. It's not easy. All, uh, being an attorney and a malpractice lawyer is a hard line of work to be in. But when you love it, it just makes it all worthwhile. And uh, Brendan, that's what I love seeing more is people doing things that they never dreamt that they would do and then succeeding in a way that's beyond their wildest imagination. And that's why we run the Mastermind Experience. And, and that's the reason that's the best thing I've ever done in my career, is meeting people like you. And I'm looking forward to someday meeting your partner as well. Yep, we're going to be there. He was supposed to go to the one in Chicago, and his flight got all screwed up. So yeah, uh, yeah maybe we'll make a point to come down to Florida or Boston. Sounds awesome. But you should. Uh, John, thank you so much. This was an awesome interview. And again, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'll see you hopefully in person very soon, okay? Congrats on the uh, settlement as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.